Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. This is your host, Nick Taylor, with a horror-adjacent episode. Today's episode has documentarian Tara Wood on the show. Tara is the director of the new Quentin Tarantino documentary, QT8, The First Date. Prior to this, she did the Richard Linklater documentary entitled 21 Years Richard Linklater. So her new movie covers Tarantino's career from Reservoir Dogs to The Hateful Eight, his first eight movies, and features sit-down interviews with multiple actors and collaborators, all of which get to the heart of who Quentin Tarantino is as an artist and as a person. I had a real field day with this movie. Tarantino is a Christ-like figure in my life, so watching this, as you can imagine, was pure bliss. The movie featured interviews with everybody from Michael Madsen to Jamie Foxx, Samuel L. Jackson, Lawrence Bender, Bruce Dern, Tim Roth, Zoe Bell, Diane Kruger, Lucy Liu, Jennifer Jason Lee, Christoph Waltz, Kurt Russell, and the dearly departed Michael Forrester and many many more. Really, really enjoy this documentary and really, really enjoy talking to Tara. So without further ado, here is Tara Wood, the director of QT8, The First Date. I was wondering what was your initial approach to storytelling? I mean, were you were you toying with ideas of doing nonlinear, considering it was Tarantino, and how did the overall kind of structure come together? Uh, yeah, I, I definitely considered that. But anything, and the same thing with the music, this will apply to anything that I felt came close to um, seemingly competing mm-hmm. with his style, immediately got mixed. <laughs> so <laughs> if it didn't, if it didn't seem natural to go in that kind of direction, then I I, I pulled away from it rather than forcing nonlinear. That's because of you know right. Um, yeah. And the same with the music, like when we were creating the score, we're like, well, we want to feel that, but we, w- we don't want to mimic that. So, right. um, with regard to how it started, um, looking at the film, it felt like he looked at uh, bigger, well, actually it was after the Stacey Sher interview where she says that he, he looks at uh, whatever, what goes into his films is what he's considering in his life at the time. Mm-hmm. So that seemed to really break it into those three chapters. So mm-hmm. the chapters we used, that's him. Right. <laughs> um, but what started as a revolution, which was very much um, Quentin entering the scene and um, changing filmmaking with his style, that's what we saw in Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. And it was very strong that way. And then he he moved into the next three, which were very female centric, uh, and genre motivated. Right. Uh, and then, you know, then Django bastards and hateful eight looked a lot more like, um, justice. Like he was looking for answers. Yeah. On those, you know, so, um, a lot of that came out because I did the, 21 years Richard Linklater documentary realized that with this type of film, especially if you're not uh, 
creating an expose, which this is not, Mm -hmm. uh, when you're just kind of celebrating and considering the filmography, you don't have that set path, you know? So, um, what I learned was that the, the, the interviewees definitely kind of dictate what those themes are and what you start to hear more often. And, um, so, so they tell the story and, and then I have to, you know, I pull from that, but they, they definitely, they definitely drove the, the narrative. Interesting. So yeah. One of the things that I really enjoyed about the movie was it really painted what felt like a very pic- vivid portrait of what it must be like to be on a Tarantino set. I've heard all the stories I've cool. heard about Big Jerry, you know, <laughs> yeah. and then no cell phone policy mm-hmm. and all of that. Were you ever given set access? Were you able ever 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 able to either be a fly on the wall throughout the course of filming or anything along those lines? No. And I, the reason why was when I went to Quentin again after Linklater, um, he gave us his blessing based on watching the Linklater doc. And he loved right. that it concentrated on the filmography. Um and he he made it very clear. He's like, I'm going to support everybody to show up for these interviews, but I don't want to meet you. <laughs> so, because he didn't want it to be biased. He's right, like, I don't want right. you to, to right, you know, to take anything from me directly. He's like, I love that you don't interview the director. Like, he was really into that. He loved it. Mm. I mean, I assume that a lot of people went to him to make documentaries about him. Right. Um, and I guess that's what allowed him to let me do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was kind of shocking from Tarantino. I thought for sure that he'd want to, I thought we were going to have the other battle. I thought I was going to have to convince him that we don't interview the director, <laughs> but he was, <laughs> he was very much on board. Well, I was that's surprised, interesting. you know, I, <laughs> well, considering what his public persona is, right. I think that's what most people would expect, right? And I, I was definitely one of those. I would imagine it would have so. its own benefits, though, to not have direct access, or not that you don't have direct access to him, but to not rely on a big, long interview with him to kind of carry the movie. The fact that you have to get it through other people, I mean, I thought it dimensionalized him much better as opposed to it being straight from the, you know, from his 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 mouth. I mean, did it seem like, did it feel like mm-hmm. in a way an advantage that served the film ultimately? the fact that it didn't focus on him talking about his own life. Absolutely. I think it's natural. You know, when you meet somebody or, or want to get into business or into a relationship, you ask other people about that person. Right. 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 So it's kind of a natural way to go. So I think it's, um, well, now that he was so definitive going forward, because we're moving on with Tim Burton and David Fincher. Oh, wow. Um, I know. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. Um, That's awesome. But I definitely will not talk to them. Like, like Quentin, he, he's like most things with regard to film. Mm-hmm. He was right. <laughs> you right. Know, he was right for me not to meet him. Interesting. 100%. Right. Um, the reviews have been great, um, which is great. The audiences have been great. People, the, the reaction I like the best, um, and you know, they, they watch this, they, they learn things that they didn't know. They like him personally more um mm. maybe um what i feel the documentary reveal reveals is that um his his public persona really is different than right. him you know his, his we all know he's loyal and he and he, he uses the same people in several of his films but i think we kind of learn why a little bit more so people soften to well what 
the use of violence. Well, it's not because he's a violent guy or it's, um, uh, what does Sam Jackson say? Or the N-word to scratch the nails on the blackboard. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a reason behind everything he does. Right. And it comes from a place of care and interest and uh, his constant uh, exploration of human condition. I mean, it's, it's much more interesting than than, than the surface. Mm-hmm. And they want to go see all his films again. So, <laughs> in that sense, the reaction is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Having done this documentary and having learned so much about him, and I remember hearing him in interviews talk about how every single movie he did, he put something very personal in it. And there was some quote along the lines of, if you're dealing with something and you don't channel it into your art, then you're just not doing your job right. And he's gone on to talk about how Kill Bill (laughs) is deeply personal, but he does not tell people specifically what about himself he's putting in those movies. But that being said, considering all that you learned about him and the people that you spoke to, um, I would imagine you rewatched all the movies multiple times. What were some of the kind of insights or revelations you got revisiting his movies, knowing what you know about him now? I mean, what was it like to rewatch his movies through the lens of the experience that you just had learning about him? Kill <laughs> um, Bill looks very different to me. Um, I, I think that's <laughs> where he. And people didn't say this. But I'm, I'm definitely pulling this. Yeah. Uh, but the the fact that she was she was raped and he explored how a woman feels after that uh-huh. and what how she's driven um, that came after the uh, I believe was it the well yeah he had heard about um, Harvey assaulting Uma at that time, right? That was during that time. Oh, wow. And the car accident happened. and the, Yeah, so there's um, that scene to, again, nobody said this. Right. But that looks different to me. Kill Bill looks very different. When, when, she, when she wakes up in the bed and she's holding herself and, right. and realizing that she goes after the, the doctor. That was interesting. Um, wow. Or the aide, excuse me, the nurse's aide. Uh, And they did mention this with Hateful Eight that um, John Ruth, Kurt Russell's character, was based on the explosive personality of Harvey Weinstein. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I remember. That was very, Hateful Eight's very different. (laughs) Yeah, I guess I can see the explosions maybe being about. I don't know. I liked John Ruth as a character. I thought he was kind of a cool guy. I mean, they're all hateful, but I think out of anyone, he had the the most moral compass. But I didn't originally, it was hard for me to see Harvey Weinstein in him. But those explosive outbursts, from what I understand, that was common with Weinstein. Yeah. Oh, and the fact that he used Zoe Bell and Death Proof after the accident that happened on on Kill Bill with Uma. Oh, interesting. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. So watching the movie, I one another thing I really enjoyed is it really distills a lot of kind of artist insights. There's a lot of inspirational stuff that other creatives and artists of not just directors, but all stripes could could use for for their art or what they're creating. Did you set out to make something that was specifically for creatives and that was for, you know, other artists that they could kind of pull from? Was that an intention? Well, yeah. I, I that was the part that um I think people did want to know more about um, the fans. Yeah. Um, So we would concentrate on, on those types of questions, I guess. Gotcha. So like the reason why he was like the comparisons to using old movies, like the killing sequence from uh, above the, 
the floor plan and how we used it in Kill Bill mm-hmm. and how we structure that or sharing that. Um, yeah, Tim Roth, I believe, says that, you know, he discusses those references and he sits with you and talks about it. Um, or again, Zoe Bell running up the staircase when he, you know, he wanted her to have an intention and that made it better, a better performance for her as she ran up the, the staircase going after Lucy Liu's character. Yeah, I was taking so notes during those parts. Was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was all. But yeah, I found that stuff interesting. The the way he does things. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, like you said before, there's meaning behind every decision that he makes and every choice he makes. I mean, he's just such a consummate artist in that regard. So yeah, there's fascinating mm-hmm. stuff about his process. Um, I could have watched something that was three times longer. So I, I would, I really was enjoying it a lot. Not just being a Tarantino fan, but I just it was it was so much fun. So. Um, uh. I wish I could have. <laughs> I would have watched a docu series. Forty-five hours. <laughs> oh man! Well, what I was mm-hmm. wondering is, what were the most painful things to cut from the movie? I mean, what were some things that you really wanted to be in there that just didn't make the cut? Oh, geez, there's so much. There, uh, one cute one, I guess, is the um, the story about how the the tooth wagon came to be in Django. Oh. Um, and it was because, yeah, so I, thought, I was like, that's, you know, why? How why did that come wagon? to be? <laughs> yeah, I always thought that was a very so obscure part. Right, right. So Christoph Waltz had um, broken his pelvis by falling off the horse. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah, and uh, they had to keep shooting, obviously, and he wanted to keep shooting. So he got well enough to continue shooting, but not well enough to straddle a horse again so they okay. built the tooth wagon <laughs> so that he could sit comfortably <laughs> that's adorable um, and then when they blew it up they were very upset but apparently there is still a, uh, a the original is still in a museum in alpine i believe she said interesting but, so yeah that was a cute story yeah that is cool <laughs> but michael madsen had lots of stories i mean there like bruce Bruce Dern, I think, spoke for three and a half or four hours, and he know, you know, his stories are amazing. Oh, wow. And and sitting with Robert Forster, and you know, I wish I could have kept a, a good forty-five minutes of what Robert had to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That was concentrated around Quentin and how Quentin, um, you know, brought his career back from from the depths, but in a very eloquent, loving way. You know, a very Robert Forster way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you're, I mean, getting the movie made had some difficulties with it. I mean, obviously you got locked into a legal battle and you don't, don't feel the need to go into too much detail unless you want to. But for other filmmakers who face similar kind of obstructions to getting the project made, um, I mean, other than getting a good lawyer, are there any pieces of advice mm-hmm. or resources that you recommend or just specific pieces of advice for keeping a level head during those time periods to, and, and making sure that you come out and actually get the movie made? Because it can be often really difficult for a lot of filmmakers and it leads to a lot of projects not happening. But it sounds like in your case, yes. you push through pretty hard. <laughs> um, yes, I, um, I have a couple bits, actually. One um know the worth of the project and whether it does make sense um and if that matters mm-hmm. if money matters then that definitely has to be considered <laughs> um in the ultimate return right right so 
don't fight just for the sake of fighting, I guess is the, the advice on that side. Um, the other is when you do make your decision and you do find that it does have worth and is worth fighting for, don't listen to other people hmm. because people definitely, I mean, I, with regard to this, in my experience specifically and what I was up against, you can imagine I got a lot of advice to let it go right. that I would never win this battle. <laughs> um, right. But if you really believe in something, don't listen to that. Wow. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and when you're in the middle of it and it's absolutely horrible, just stop and give it a few days and then, and then go back. Just take a Definitely. mental health break. <laughs> just, yeah. Cause it, it could, Again, uh, you can imagine the things, you know, what I had to deal with, with this and anger was a huge part of it at many, at many stops. And I, I couldn't let the anger of not having the project, um, destroy the, the forward movement of getting that back. Right. So, right. There was a lot of times you have to stop and just don't, don't, you know, don't speak when you're angry sort of thing. Mm, interesting. Okay, I feel like that's great advice. Thank you. Um, so one, th I mean, you Uma probably said it best on the red carpet. Do you remember that? When somebody mm -hmm. asked her about how she felt about Harvey? No, I don't remember that. What did she say? And she was seething. <laughs> she <laughs> said, I've been told. Or no, she said, I have learned not to speak when I'm angry. So I am not going to speak right now. <laughs> and I will get back to you when I am not angry. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. She had a right to be mad. Yeah. Usually go look at that. That was, woo. Like if her hair could get catch on fire, it would have at that moment. Yeah. I'll tell you, I'll definitely have to check that out. Did you have any conversations with her <laughs> at any point? Yes, quite a bit. Um, and she uh, ultimately, obviously she didn't partake, but she, uh, before I signed with Harvey, she was hesitant and I, um, I didn't really understand why. Cause I knew her and Quentin were, were friends again. Um, uh, but then obviously I learned why. Uh, and then once Har well, once Harvey bought the film, she went quiet and, and uh, I was confused by that. But then, um, October 5th, I went, you know, when the Me Too movement began, I learned why she had, her she was hesitating to come forward um when i finally did win the rights back she still wrestled with it and then ultimately she just couldn't bring herself to do it which i actually did speak to quentin about this um and his uh his reaction was i understand so Got it. Got it. <laughs> um i think i think uma has a lot there's probably more that we don't know and yeah. she has every right to to not feel the need to share that so no of course, of course. That, that was a big disappointment though it would have been i would have loved to have uma yeah. Because they had such a great time. Right, right. As a, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, he was. Yeah. she was his muse for the longest time. As a filmmaker yourself, what were some of the most important lessons you learned from studying Quentin Tarantino and from doing this documentary that you are now going to apply for your career and your work? Uh, the importance of the attention to detail and the passion behind the detail. I mean, he knows where every single thing is on that set and everything has meaning and the character has, 
background that's never even brought up. And, you know, all of those details fuel your story. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And and sharing that with the people you're working with and learning how to, you know. Is that, you know, whoever it, my, my style, obviously, if I went, stepped into a narrative as a filmmaker, isn't going to be, I, I wouldn't go about it the same way, mm-hmm. but addressing, addressing it is definitely, that, that's probably what I learned the most as a filmmaker. Very cool. From him, from him. Yeah. That's great. So last few mm-hmm. questions, um, were there any, what was some of the most, I mean, obviously you, you entered the movie with a conceived notion of who he was. What were some of the biggest surprises about him that came out when you were either researching or making the movie or learning about him from, uh, from the people that he'd worked with? Were there any big surprises about him? The biggest surprise for me was that he is, the, I, I, I touched on it earlier, but that everything comes from, I think it starts in his heart. Right. Um, that's why his characters are so great. That's why, you know, his love of film and that's why his technical side is so great. Like it, it all starts with love and passion. Um, and, and he's brilliant. I mean, he's so, everybody knew pieces of these things, mm-hmm. you know, but you didn't realize to the extent, like he has a huge heart and he has, like a huge brain (laughs) like um and a huge passion like everything is huge and developed um and and very specific yeah i heard um he is a literal i I heard he's a literal genius i heard his iq is the same of the same as stephen hawking's which isn't this it it makes sense but one of the the, um (laughs) yeah but then you look at the movies you're like oh yeah of course yeah we're in the hands of an actual literal genius but one um i read that when it comes to iq and when it comes to what people perceive of as genius one of the highest cognitive indicators of genius is your memory and he has such an encyclopedic memory of just seemingly every last detail of every movie he's ever seen from which he can draw when he's directing and writing new movies, which I thought was really interesting mm-hmm. that he can just memorize these little details and not just the facts thereof, but the emotion with it. Right. The feeling. So he has the emotional memory and the, the feeling of it. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I, when I finally did meet him, um, he, he quoted lines from the Linklater documentary from what people said in there. I mean, wow. I, I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> It was crazy. I was like, wow, you, you're like everything and more about what everybody just said. Like when I sat down and actually met him, it he, everything everybody said was like exploded in front of me. And, and it, like, wow, it was huge. And wow. it, you it, within five seconds, it, it, everything. <laughs> and you just brushed on this before, but I wanted to, to reiterate it. Um, I read in another interview that you were told by other people that Quentin Tarantino was all heart and that's what inspired you to make the movie. So I, I would imagine you, you saw that kind of, you saw his actual heart unfold throughout the course of making the movie. Um, and you touched on his passion for everything and his putting his heart into, into every single last detail of everything. What are some of the other ways that just the kind of size and scope of his heart manifested either as an artist or a person or as a director that you discovered while making this movie? 
I think Michael Madsen, uh, uh, watching or listening to him and sitting with him and how he talks about Quentin and um, Michael says um, that Quentin told him, you know, when he, he brought him on to, this was hateful eight at the time, but he said, you know, Michael, you were there at the beginning and you're going to be here now. And there were little things like that that really um, solidified that idea yeah. of him coming heart first. And and there's more to just having somebody show up on the set and and the why behind it. But he, you know, he he feels what he feels for Michael. He wants to make sure that he's there, and he doesn't care what the industry says about where these people are in their career. He's going to put them there for not not only the show of look at me, I'm loyal, but I'm going to help. I believe that Quentin really wants to boost his career and help him in his life. Right. You know, it it goes further than just the show of, you know, look at me, I'm loyal. I'm bringing my friends with me. Right. Now that's huge. Um, I'm trying to think of another example of that. Maybe I'll think of one before we finish. Okay. But my, uh, sorry. <laughs> no, no worries. Um, so and you did, you did address this question, but so Tim Burton and David Fincher are next. Anybody else you'd like to do a documentary on? Uh, P.T. Anderson. Oh, that'd be cool. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. I, I hope, I hope that follows on Soderbergh. That would be really cool. I, I hope that, you know, yeah, if the industry allows me, I will continue. I lo- I'd love it. No, I, I love the really idea of them being a series. Too. Like there's this series of director books. Um, I, th- I forgot what they're mm-hmm. called. I have a st- I have like almost all of them, but there's like a series of uh, of director interview books and doing it like a series of just of documentaries that just cover all of these different directors and then, and having like a uniformity to it. I love that idea. Yeah, like the animation. I love the animation. Yeah, the animation was super cool, by the way. Yeah, it's really fun to like. Like that's how we can bring Quentin into it and have fun with it. And I, I think it really lends itself to uh, uh, seeing different aspects that we kind of miss because we don't interview the directors. Mm-hmm. So that that gives us a little a little room for it. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. And <laughs> the fact that we don't interview the director. So yeah. So this is kind of a selfish question because I'm working on my own documentary, but were there any Mm -hmm. um, filmmaking? There's a lot of books on filmmaking, a lot of books on directing and documentary filmmaking courses. And a lot of them are done by people who've never really done it. So they're not really, you got to take it with a grain of salt. But that being said, as a filmmaker, were there any either um, resources or books or anything that contributed to your ability as a documentarian that you'd recommend? There was, yeah, it was the uh, Robert Rodriguez's, uh, I'm trying to remember the name. Oh, Rebel Without a Crew. Yes, yes, yes. That was it. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, that was a great one. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And last couple of questions. Yeah, here it is. It's right in front of me. Yeah, I love him. I love his director. uh, His director interview show is excellent. Oh, and he's another one I would love to do as well. Oh, yeah, he would be great. Mm-hmm. He would be great, and it would round out the uh, the Austin crew with um, Linklater, Tarantino, and, Rod- and Rodriguez. Oh yeah, there you go. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
So um, seeing the movie in its finished form, what would you have invested more in and what would you have invested less in? I don't necessarily mean money. It could be time, effort, resources, energy, but what would you have invested in more and what would you have invested in less? Probably worried less about who was going to show up Mm -hmm. because the ones that should be there tend to. Hmm. That's kind of a fluffy statement. No, no, but. that's 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 a big one though. Yeah, because we're there's people uh-huh. we're struggling to get, and we're constantly working around their schedules. And but I like that kind of I like that idea that people who should be there will will want to be there. Yeah, and if the and, well, it depends on what kind of documentary you're making as well, right? Yeah. No, I mean that's a comforting idea that the people who belong in the movie will want to be there. Hmm. And force, and I think sometimes forcing or or pressuring, right? Mm. Uh, then you, then you get on set, you find out you're like, oh well, because there's not much to contribute, like you thought there was, you know? Right, so, right. Yeah, I stand by that. So they kind of weed themselves out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Um, but I might have spent more time making, trying to make them more comfortable. Huh. I probably would have spent more time there. Gotcha. Or figured out how to spend my time better there. I don't know. Got it. That one I feel slipped away. Gotcha. Well, it was regardless, it was a really fantastic movie and I really, really enjoyed it a lot. So huge congratulations. Thank you very much. Oh, here's another one. Read the book on fair use, which I believe Michael Donaldson put out. Oh, that's great. If you're a documentarian. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. This whole film was done on fair use. I didn't pay for any footage. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah, I was yeah. wondering because there's some big, <laughs> long scenes from movies that are in there. And you really like it didn't seem like you had to worry about it, anything being too long. And it just it was very you were able to really get some great scenes in there without cutting them too heavily, which was great. Okay, so I will and read that ba- book. And that's based on, yeah, use it, knowing fair, uh, the fair use law very well and how to use it and how to be very creative with it mm. um, before you go into your interviews because you have to drive the interviews in order to use it into what they say. So you kind of have to help. For example, I wanted to use Steeler's Wheel um, in the dance sequence, obviously, mm-hmm. right? But I wanted to make the music guys will come after you before the film guys will, mm. you know? So... I was like, Michael, do you mind saying specifically, you know, the song and and how long and like really explain out the scene? Because then you can use the whole scene. You don't have to cut out of it. Oh, that's really interesting because it's all about contextuality. Mm-hmm. They have to be specifically talking about what you want to show or else you can't show it. Oh, that's brilliant. Right. Okay. That's right. a huge and tip. Then, Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Michael Donis was amazing. I have a bunch of Tarantino books, but were there any particular books on him that you liked more than the rest? Um, you know, I started to read a couple and, and stopped. Um, it was almost the same idea as not meeting Quentin until afterwards. Interesting. Okay. But Taran- but Tom Schoen's uh, Tarantino retrospective, hmm. I thought was, um, was nice. There's a, um, yeah, a couple a couple other ones I had, had touched on, but I abandoned them relatively quickly. Gotcha. I really no, wanted to sense. keep a clean slate with regard to stuff that wasn't already out there. Yeah. 
Yeah, I feel like it's important to do that as a filmmaker or balance it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And and people have such strong opinions on him where they, they speak as though it's fact. Right. And that turned me off to a couple a couple of them. Mm. No, that makes a lot of sense. Well, hey, Tara, this was really a lot of fun. Thank you again. This was uh, this was fantastic. Bye. Bye. All right, guys. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please, please, please share it with your friends and family on social media. You can follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor. Same handle on Twitter. That's I am Nick Taylor. And don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show.